you um, have your Bibles again, Second uh, Corinthians, First Corinthians chapter two, First Corinthians chapter two, verses one to five. As I was thinking about what to um, preach on this morning, this verse um, came to my attention, and so. Um, because as I look out among you, I see so many that teach and preach in our church. And so this message is for you. It's reminding us what is important as we preach and teach. Um, as maybe you just come into our church and you say, what is the preaching all about in this church teaching? Well, I want to establish why we do what we do at True Life Church. And thirdly, I want to encourage you if you're like, well, preaching and teaching is for the you know, certain gifted people in our church. I want to encourage you that God is calling you and that you are capable of preaching and teaching too. Like God has given that mandate to go into the world and preach the gospel to every creature. And that mandate is um, for you and that uh, you can do that. Um, but as I was thinking about um, uh, my topic, it says preaching, I called it preaching that doesn't really help anyone. Um, and that's my topic because Paul is going to say, I didn't do this, and I didn't do this, and I didn't do this. So this positive thing like you following Jesus happened. Um, I'm just flipping around and saying, well, if you do this this way, and if you do it this way, I'm just turning his message on his back and saying, if you do these things, then nobody's really actually going to be following Jesus well. And so I called it the preaching that doesn't help anyone. I'm going to talk with four things that if we do, it's not really going to actually help anyone. It's not going to really help. Because we can have good intentions, right? And it actually not be a help at all. I remember very clearly, because this was my first day of marriage. So we got married on a Saturday. The next Sunday morning, Andrea says to me, you know, wake up that you, you married a wife. She says, we can't go to church unless I have my good shoes. Or the, my church shoes. She was wearing, probably with her outfit, because I'm sure she had her really good shoes. No. She didn't. She left no matter where we got married. So she didn't have good shoes. And she said, I need my good shoes. So we went back to her house. And she lived on the Pittston Road. And as we picked up her shoes, we were heading back down the road. And it was, we came to this nice straight stretch. And there were fields on both sides. Because I think it had been a former dump. And so there was fields on both sides on the road. And it was straight. And I look ahead. And I see there's literally thousands and thousands of little white birds covering the road and the field. And so I'm a maritimer. I... You know, been born and raised in the Maritimes. And I've noticed as you drive in Maritimes that birds get out of your way when you drive along the road. Have you noticed that? Like there's a, there's a, a crushed roadkill there and there's like five crows at it and you, you drive up. I don't slow down and they get out of the way. And so a brilliant idea came to my head that what I'm going to do is I'm going to speed up because, and, and I'm going to come and those birds are going to lift and it's going to be like we're, we're flying through this like canopy of white doves. I mean, what a great idea. First day of marriage, beautiful sunny day. And it's just going to be like, you know, releasing doves as you walk down the aisle. So I sped up and I'm coming to those birds and about 20 to 30 feet away, as I'm probably doing 120 maybe, I realized the birds aren't moving fast enough. And we went through those birds like driving through a feather pillow. <laughs> I have never, ever experienced this before or after in my life. They were bouncing off my windows, my mirrors. It was those feathers going everywhere. And I'm looking, and my wife has this devastated look on her face. She didn't grow up around farming, nothing. I mean, first time we actually butchered a meat, like a meat chicken, she, she cried for a half hour, right? So we're going through, and all she knows is her new husband of 12 hours just said, watch this. <laughs> I spent the last two hours saying, that was not what I meant when I said, watch this. It was, a, I thought, a great intention. 
But what damage can be done with great intentions? It seemed like a good idea, right? And, and I know I'm not the only one that does that, although maybe I'm more, <laughs> more prone to it than some people. I will admit that. But I was reading the other day, actually quite a while ago, and then the other day I was reading a story that uh, brought to my attention that about 20 or 30 years ago, I remember there were some scientists or um, somebody that, um, that thought it would be a good idea because there was erosion around, I think, Brazil's islands, and they looked, hey, listen, the Canadian beaver is great at building, building dams and stuff like that. We'll bring them down, put them on the islands to be able to control the erosion. Because some, somebody had told them, that's supposed to know better, but told them that, that beavers don't swim in salt water. Well, they never talked to any maritimer because when I was young, I would go on the trap line with my dad and we did most of our trapping in salt water because as you guys know, that you actually float better in salt water. It's easier to swim in salt water than fresh water. And so, um, they, uh, so, so what happens? They put the beavers on the islands, but they didn't realize that beavers have no natural predators. They don't have any bears. They don't have coyotes, you know, nothing uh, there. And so the, the beavers now have done billions of dollars worth of damage all over. And they're just creating this, this huge problem. And I just read the other day that right now they're doing the largest eradication project ever attempted in, in South America. Because somebody said, hey, that's a good idea with probably good intentions. Now, when it comes to the word of God, if we look throughout history, there's many preachers that possibly have had good intentions with the word of God, but incredible harm can sometimes come if we teach in a way that God has not called us to teach. Jeremiah 5, 30 to 31 says this, an appalling and horrible thing has happened in the land. So in other words, this is devastating, right? Appalling and horrible. The prophets prophesy falsely and the priests rule at their direction. In other words, they're just... They're doing what they think is best from their heart. This is, this is what I think would be helpful or appropriate, or this is what I feel like should be said. And it says, my people love to have it so, but what are you going to do when the end comes? So the people aren't ready for the end. They're not prepared. And you notice a couple things. Is first of all, the, the people enjoyed it. So when I'm saying that preaching that doesn't help anyone, the, the people are actually enjoying it, right? They, they're like, wow, that, that felt good. I feel good about myself. Matter of fact, I would say this, that there's even some temporal help because if you read about some of the false prophets, people would feel a lot better about themselves because they're like, hey, listen, God's going to provide everything for you. Don't worry, Nebuchadnezzar's not going to take away your stuff and all this sort of stuff. And for months, they might have felt good until Nebuchadnezzar came and took away the stopped because God said he would, but there was the, some, some false help. I put it this way. It's like giving a Band-Aid to a person with a stroke, right? They, they might feel a little better that somebody's caring about their plight. They might feel a little better that something looks like it's being done, but in the end, that Band-Aid's not going to do one thing for helping them get better from the stroke. And God says, what are you going to do in the end? Because my preachers aren't really helping you at all. And so um, not only do we have teachers that I want to remind us of what's valuable for us, not only do I want to explain why we do what we do here at True Life Church, but I want to give you confidence that you can be a proclaimer also this morning. And so, again, I'm, I'm saying this. If we want to preach and not help anyone, we must, in verse 1, ensure that a fancy presentation is our priority. If we want to 
preach or teach and not really help anyone, we need to ensure that the fancy presentation is our priority. Paul says this, when I came to you, brothers and sisters, announcing the mystery of God to you, I did not come with brilliance of speech or wisdom. Now, now the point is that Paul could have, right? He didn't say, well, I wasn't able to come because, you know, I mean, I was just like Peter and the apostles, I'm fishermen. So I really did not have the skill to do it. So I'm like, well, if I don't have skill, I'm not even going to try. No, Paul was trained by Gamaliel. Like he probably knew, we probably would think five languages. He was skilled in the art of being able to make a debate, how to pull in, you know, good quotes, how to make a, a popular argument with literally allusions and a refined style. He knew how to do it. And he says, but I didn't want to make that my primary way of communicating. He says, I didn't come to you in that manner. If Paul wanted to show off his intellect, he certainly knew how to do it. But he said, I actually rejected that approach. Now, Paul is not saying that you're not going to try to do our best, right? Um, our, our goal is not to be boring with the word of God. I hope you understand that that's not what he's saying. I think it's a tragedy if we take the life-giving, literally breathed out words of the, the almighty creator of heaven and earth, and we make it so people are bored to tears. I think that's a tragedy, if we, if we don't try to speak it well, I think that is a tragedy to happen. But Paul says, but I didn't go for the wow, wow factor. When he finished, Paul says, I didn't want people saying, what a great preacher, but rather, what a great savior. I like what uh, um, James Denny says this. He said, no man can give at once the impression that he himself is clever and that Jesus Christ is mighty to save. You can either impress people with your cleverness or you can impress them with Jesus, but you can't do both. And that's what Paul's saying here. Paul's saying, listen, I wanted Jesus to be magnified. I don't want Jesus to be the focus. And not, wow, what a clever, you know I mean, use of um, manipulation of words that the preacher had. In some senses, his goal was not to be noticed. You know, as I've been in some pastorates, um, you know, without... When, when, People before some of my other pastors are like, um, so what kind of pastor are you? And I'm like, well, take your pick because I'm the only pastor. You know, whatever role you need, I'll be that pastor of, of the day for you. But, uh, but when, you're, when you're like, you know, in a, in a smaller church and you're, you have to teach everybody, you know, the goal of what is happening. I remember teaching like the audio and the visual people and saying, listen, your goal is not to be noticed. The, the way you want to do a good job of what you're doing because you don't want to be noticed because when I, when I step up and if there's ringing and there's stuff, guess what? Who gets the attention? People aren't thinking necessarily about the words I'm speaking. They're like, um, is the sound guy paying attention back there, right? Or am I the only one that notices that, right? Or, or, or when, the, when the, the, the lights or the screen's not working right, guess what? People are like, hey, is there anybody paying attention back there? The, the lyrics aren't changing. What's going on back there? And so we want to do a job that minimizes us and that maximizes the word of God and the glory of God. And so he said, listen, I didn't come trying to show forth my intellect, my resourcefulness, but rather give witness to God's truth. And it's interesting, he said, announcing the mystery of God in verse 1, if you notice that. The word mystery in some of your Bibles might be testimony, or it's the idea of, of getting, giving a testimony in a court of law. And I want you to think about that. Um, I was only in a court once. I know some of you um, would have more f familiarity with this. Um, but I, I, I watched Judge Judy once, if that counts. Um, <laughs> but uh, how do you glare truth in a court of law? Anytime that I've been around, it's, it's this. You just simply declare. 
right? What, what you went through. You don't have lights and you don't have moving music with a light show with grand gestures, you know, a drum roll. And now for our final presentation. You don't do those things. You say, say, here's the truth of what I saw or what I know, what has happened. And Paul says, I chose to have a simple declaration when I came to you. And that's why here at True Life Church, we usually use a lot of scripture in our messages. Because if the sermon is a flop, you can't go home and say, well, we didn't get any word because you, you got the, the, the perfect word of God, at least, that you can go home and meditate on that can change your life. 2 Timothy 4, 1 to 4 says, I charge you therefore before God and Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing. Preach the word. Be instant, in season, out of sudden. In other words, just always keep preaching the word of God. And he says, there will come a time when people will not want that, but you keep preaching the word of God. He says, don't give them necessarily what they want. Give them what they need. And they need to hear the truth of what God says. They need to hear the explanation of what God says. So if we don't really want to, to change people, then we need to teach and make our priority of how we do it, the presentation rather than the message itself. Secondly, um, if we want to preach and not really help anyone, we need to ignore centering the message around the person and work of Jesus Christ. Look in verse 2. I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now, Paul, being trained under Gamaliel, would have been able to wax eloquent on many things um, in life and what was happening in history at that time. He would have been able to talk about that. I mean, you, you listen to him talking to Herod Agrippa and Festus. I mean, he's able to communicate with kings, right? But he said, I kept my message plain. I kept it simple, and I kept it centered on Jesus Christ. Tim Keller has said this many times. The gospel is just not the ABCs. Of Christianity, but it's the A to Z of Christianity. I like how Spurgeon puts it. He said, I have never yet found a text that did not have a road to Christ in it. And if I ever do find one, which would be something because Spurgeon spoke a lot of messages, that did not have a road to Christ in it, I will make one. I will go over hedge and ditch, but I would not get at my master. Sorry, but I would get at my master, for my sermon will not do any good unless there is a Savior of Christ in it. And that was Paul's thing. If you think about it, when he's at Athens, as he's going to the, um, the marketplace, and he's talking to the people, they actually had a word for him, and the, that word was, what does this babbler have to say? And the, the word babbler is literally seed picker. Um, in our words, it would be somebody who maybe like just keeps like scratching the same scab or itching the same spot. Like they, they just keep doing the same thing. But they're like, this, this Paul... He says he keeps talking about the same thing. We're talking about the weather. And all of a sudden he's speaking of the two things that he spoke of, that they accuse him of, is Jesus and the resurrection. Like we're talking about the weather. And all of a sudden he's talking about Jesus and the resurrection again. We're talking about the new tax that Herod has. And guess what? All of a sudden this guy's talking about Jesus and the resurrection. Then finally they're like, hey, listen, come on, Paul. Tell us about your gods. Plural, because they heard about Jesus in the resurrection. Apparently, they thought there were two gods. But like, come on, tell us. We want a whole explanation. And then what does he do? He stands up in front of them and says, okay, I want to declare to you what you need to know. Now, 1 Timothy 3, 6, 3 16 to 17 says, sorry, 2 Timothy says, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable. And then it talks about all these areas where it's profitable. 
Now, the Word of God speaks to all areas of our life, right? It speaks to family, finances, how to respond to government authorities, all these things. But I like what Ray Pritchard said. He says, we can preach about social issues, the political debates of our day, the crisis in the Middle East or the decline of the family. We can tackle Bible prophecy or we can major on predestination or we can spend our days arguing about some aspect of church government. There is a place for all those things, but that place is never at the center. The center ought to be on Jesus Christ and him crucified. See, we never grow beyond the gospel. The gospel is not just the minimum required doctrine necessary to enter the kingdom, but it's how we live in the kingdom. Without the grace of Jesus, we are always helpless, right? What did Jesus say? I am the vine, you are the branches. So we're already talking to people that are connected, that are branches. He says, abide in me because without me you can do Well, thank you, Jesus, for the help to get saved, but I'll take it from here. No, that's not the gospel. The gospel is like, no, you need grace to get saved, and you need grace to live saved. And grace will take you all the way to glory. You can't do it without Christ. We're not going to get to heaven one day and say, Jesus helped me get in the race, and I took it from there. What does the Bible say? Jesus says, you are the author and the finisher of our faith. Right? I start... I stay and I get there because of Jesus. Because my faith is on the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Galatians 3.3, as they're starting to say, okay, you know, Jesus started this. Now we got to start doing these things. Paul says this to them. He says, are you so foolish, having begun in the spirit? You think you're going to make yourself perfect in the flesh? Galatians 3.3. And so I want to encourage us as teachers I think there's some times that we can go into the, what they would call moral therapeutic deism, but, but we can go into sometimes taking these Bible stories, and we can talk about people of the Bible, and we'll say to, especially I think for our kids, be like Moses, have faith like Abraham, you know, um, uh, like be like these people, as if they're the hero of the story. But there's a danger in that not making Christ and his grace and the cross, the center of the story. You know, be kind like Dorcas. And our kids are like, well, I'm trying to be kind, but I'm really having a hard time right now even being kind to my brother or sister, right? I know what you're asking me to do, but I'm not, as one of my kids says, I just can't keep on doing this. Like, it just never seems to work out. It never seems to happen. Why? Because they can't do it without Jesus Christ. That's an opportunity for me as a dad to point them to a savior. See, the last thing this world needs is more rules to follow. God gave us the Ten Commandments. How have we done just those ten? Terrible job, right? So if the church, if we give them, hey, listen, now you've got to be like this person and like this person, like this person, like this person, this person. Guess what? All we're doing is saying, listen, now it's way too hard. You are never, there's not even a chance of you even thinking you're going to get to heaven, right? Unless there's a hope that Jesus Christ is the hero of the story. He's the one that has righteousness. And if we believe in his righteousness, he now gives us his righteousness. And, and of course, he takes our sin and dealt with our sin on the cross because he's the eternal son. And so that we can now stand in Jesus Christ's righteousness accepted by the Father. That's the gospel. Philippians 2.13 says, it is God who's working in you both to will and to work according to his good purpose. See, Christianity is about grace-enabled, gospel-centered living, and our exhortations should root in God's grace that gives the listeners hope because of Jesus Christ. That's the story of the Bible. That's the story of the Bible. I like Christopher Wright says, the Old Testament tells a story which Jesus completes. 
The Old Testament reminds us that we can't make ourselves right before God. And then Jesus steps in and says, I can. I am the way to the Father. No man comes to the Father except through me. The message of the Bible is simply this. Run to Jesus. Cling to Jesus. And I trust you're here this morning because you said, I need Jesus. I can't be a good dad. I can't be a good employee. I can't honor God in my life without the grace of Jesus. And I'm here this morning because I need the grace of Jesus in my life. And Jesus is the message that changes countries, that changes people. I thought it was interesting, a few years ago, I read about a secular historian who did a study because, you know, we've all heard about colonialism and how it's been so terrible. And I, I agree, we've, we brought some things that have been unhelpful, right? We've done things that have been terrible in other countries. And I, I will agree that happened. But when we brought the gospel, listen, in the last few weeks, you've heard how the gospel has changed, how the gospel has set them free. I mean, the fact that, that we could see that there are now gray-haired people in the tribe when never before there was gray-haired people for centuries, right? Because the gospel has transformed a culture, has made such a huge difference. And so he said, I, the secular historian said, I'm just going to study and look at why has there been a difference and how has the difference happened? And he noticed this. He said, religious missionaries who went to a culture to make the culture itself better. For instance, we're going to make sure that they have better education. That's our priority. We're going to make sure that they have better access to health. So like, you know, um, like medicines and fresh water and stuff like that. Um, they came to do those things. He said 50 years later after they were gone, there was no real difference in the society. But he said, people that came and said, we are going to keep the cross central. Now, if, if somebody needs water, we'll dig a well for them, right? We want them to be alive. You have to be alive to hear the message, right? So we're going, to, we're going to help out in those areas. But our primary message is going to be the gospel of Jesus Christ. He said, 50 years later, as he looked at it, there was a huge difference morally, educationally, and in health in every country where the gospel is held center. Because the gospel changes people, and people change the culture and change the country. They need to keep the cross central, keep the gospel central. And so as we open up scriptures, we want to make much of Jesus Christ, that he's the hero of every story. Abraham was a man of faith, but guess who's the hero of Abraham's story? God. David was a man after God's own heart, but who's the hero of, of his story? God. We want to make much that God is the hero of the story. Thirdly, if we want to preach and not help anybody, we, we need to expect that people will change because of our influence. People will change because of our influence. Think through what Paul is saying in verse 3. He said, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you with weakness and fear and much trembling. He said, I wanted again to make God um, my priority. Think through what Paul's saying. He's probably the greatest missionary the church has ever known. I mean, who personally established more churches than he did? If anybody had this church planning thing down, Paul did. But what was his attitude? Weakness, fear, and trembling. On his own, Paul says, listen, it's not me. The glory doesn't go to me. I've just made myself available. The glory goes to God. Because he takes what little I have and makes much of it. Because if God is in it, little is much when he's in it. 
When Paul actually entered Corinth, if you read in the book of Acts, we don't have time to turn there, he was reeling from a lot of pressures of ministry. He had been imprisoned and severely beaten in Philippi. He had been run out of town in Thessalonica. He had been scoffed and ridiculed in Athens. At one point, he's feeling so abandoned, so alone and discouraged that God comes to him and says these words in Acts 18, 9 to 10. Don't be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent, Paul, because I am with you. And nobody's going to attack or harm you because I have many people in the city. It was almost like he was getting PTSD. He's like, I can't do this anymore. Like, what's going to be ahead? And God's like, hey, keep on speaking. Keep on walking. Because Paul, it's not you. It's me that's going to do something in this. Keep speaking and do not be silent. Yet sometimes we think, oh, I'm the one. I'm the only one who can make a difference here. Right, I'm, you know, like I, 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 I talk to people sometimes, like we always have to fight against being the Messiah complex. You know, Jesus is the one who rescues people, not me. I can just be the hands and feet of Jesus. But listen, you know, if I disappear, there'll be somebody else's the hands and feet, feet that God can provide to do the same thing I'm doing. I'm not irreplaceable. I'm just called to be and gladly want to be a part of what God is doing to be available for him. You know, we need to make sure that it's not our influence, that we let God be the influencer. We, we, we bring God glory. You know what God said? If I be lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. So what is our job? Guys, look at me. Look how, look how amazing I am. So now you want to follow the, 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 my endorsement here. I'm endorsing God. So now you want to follow God because you really think I'm pretty amazing, Right? It's like I was, um, I was reading uh, uh, Taylor Swift was at the um, Super Bowl, right? And I read a report that she was wearing these brand of jeans that cost $765. And they sold out within like hours afterwards because people saw what brand of jeans she was wearing. And so, you know, what we need to do is if we can get Taylor Swift to endorse God, then boys, we're going to get a lot more God because they really like Taylor Swift. But we've done that before. I've heard people say, listen, we're going to have evangelistic seminars, and we need to find a really, really good people person that everybody looks up to tell a story. And then with his endorsement, people will get saved because now they trust God because this celebrity has endorsed them. Paul says, no. He says, I came in weakness and trembling, and I, and I trusted. If I lifted him up, all I needed to do is get God lifted up and that he would draw people to himself. Like I think Spurgeon said in a message, he said, suppose a number of persons were to take it in their heads that they had to defend a lion, a full-grown king, a beast. There he is in a cage, and you're trying to keep everybody away from him, protect the lion. He says, stop it. He says, let the lion out. Let the lion defend himself. And God's like, hey, listen, let, just lift me up. I can do the drawing, and I will do the drawing, but you need to, you need to make sure and lift me up. We need to make much of the cross of Jesus Christ. And when you begin to preach, if you're actually preaching, I, if you're like me, it'll cause trembling. If, if you don't think so, then it's probably because you've not preached. Now, I've heard some people say, oh, no, I witnessed for Jesus Christ. And I'm like, oh, what did you say? And they said, well, I said I'd pray for you. Um, that's not quite preaching. I, I, it's a good thing to say, right? And I've had people respond to me when I say, well, thank you for sending good vibes. That doesn't actually usually offend people if you say, I'm praying for you. But if you actually start preaching the message of the cross, guess what? Um, it causes just trembling, first of all, because men don't really like that message. Because in order for you to make much of the cross of Jesus, what do we first need to talk about? The fact that, that, uh, that we are sinners, 
The Bible says most men will proclaim their own goodness. Most men want to talk about how good they are. They don't want to be reminded of how wicked they are, desperately wicked, and that they stand in judgment before a holy God, a righteous judgment of the holy God. And so their cause is trembling because that is always not necessarily well-received. The Bible says men love darkness and they don't come to light because they don't want their deeds to be reproved. And secondly, we tremble because of the seriousness of the message. Souls of men are literally hanging in the balance for eternity. The Bible says he who believes um, in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And so if you can't sit and watch the crowds in Quisbam sis, and your, and your soul doesn't tremble for the state of our fellow citizens, then you don't understand the weightiness of our message, that they need to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. And, and, and Paul felt overwhelmed by the task. They needed to hear, but would they ignore the message? Would they mock it? Would they beat him up? Would they run him out of town? He experienced all that before. But God says this, this is the word of the Lord in Zechariah 4, 6. Not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord host. Lift me up. I'll do the drawing. Francis Schaeffer says the central problem of our age is not liberalism or modernism, nor the threat of communism, nor even the threat of rationalism and monolithic consensus which surrounds us. He said, nor would it add today postmodernism or materialistic consumerism or visceral sensualism or whatever. All those are dangerous, but they're not the primary threat. The real problem is this. The church of the Lord Jesus Christ, individually or corporately, tends to do the Lord's work in the power of the flesh rather than the spirit. The central problem is always in the midst of the people of God, not in the circumstances surrounding them. He says, what? Simply trust me to do the work, but you just make much of me. You get my message out there. Then fourthly, if we're going to preach and really not help anyone, then we need to exaggerate the gospel into a better sales pitch. Look what he says in verses 4 and 5. My speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of wisdom, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so your faith might be based, not based on human wisdom, but on God's power. He said, listen, I didn't come trying to persuade you like a salesman. Sometimes we try to oversell. Um, how many of you have bought something that didn't meet the expectations of, of something that you thought it would sh should be? For instance, yesterday, um, we had an Amazon package arrive, and Andrea was very, because we were doing some renos, and so she had bought this coat hanger kind of thing, um, gold coat hanger, and she opens it, and she's like, oh, which is usually not a really good sound when my wife opens a package. And so I'm like, hey, what, what is it and stuff? And so it was this, this um, sturdy gold coat hanger, but um, all the parts weren't even the same gold color, which is a big deal for my wife. She wants it like to be all the same. And so they had, there was some plastic parts on it that, that were like a different color and stuff like that. And she's like, oh, that's not really disappointing. And so anyway, so last night I, I thought I would look and to see what she actually bought. And no joke, on the picture, so it's this sturdy gold coat, ho ha coat hanger, or whatever it says this. Um, it says on one of the pictures, this is a miracle. <laughs> I was like, a coat hanger? Like, this is stretching it a little bit. But no joke. Like, you can go look on, and one of the things that shows the coat hanger, hang on thing, and it's like, this is a miracle. I think it's overselling myself. But, you know, we've done that with the gospel. I was reading a quote from a guy. 
It says a false gospel is going from a country to the poorest of the poor saying, believe this message and your pigs won't die and your wife won't have miscarriages. You'll have rings on your fingers and coat on your back. They're selling a message that Jesus is satisfying because you're driving a BMW. And then they'll come up to the preacher and say, did Jesus give you that? And the preacher will say, yes. And they're like, well, I want Jesus because I want a better life too. What are we doing? We're minimizing the glory of salvation that we get God. And we're maximizing and say, listen, like you only want God for these earthly things, for the, the benefit on this life. And if you watch TV, we're always encouraged to seek after the good life, to become beautiful people, to get, live life with gusto, your better life now, find the real thing. And when we try to make our, our gospel message appeal to that kind of desires, I remind us, read the Bible. Because what has Jesus said? If anybody wants to follow after me, let him take up his cross, deny himself, and follow me. Right? I'm, I, I'm always like the Apostle Paul. Um, I don't think he did what he did for a better life now. If you, if you read his testimony, um, I don't think he would have understood that message. But Jesus himself would make that very clear, wouldn't he? Um, John chapter 6, they're gathering up and they fill in 12 baskets with all the bread that he broke. And they said this, this truly is the prophet who's coming into the world. And all of us would have said, well, that is a win, Jesus. Look at them. They're all saying now that you're the prophet that has come into the world. And then it says this, they, when Jesus perceived they were about to come and take him by force to make him king. And if we were there, we we're like, oh, how cool is that? Right? We've been wanting Jesus to be noticed. They're all going to come and take him as king. They're going to force him to be king. They must really believe. And then what does Jesus do? He just kind of sneaks away and goes into the wilderness. And so what do the people do? They're like, well, let's go find Jesus. Why did, why did our king just disappear on us? So they come find him. In verses 25 to 27, when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? And Jesus gets right to the heart. He said, most surely I say to you, you seek me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Do not labor for food which perishes, but the food which endures to everlasting life. He says, you're, you're looking for the wrong thing. Jesus said, you don't actually believe in me. You believe in a full stomach. You believe in bread is what you believe in. Matter of fact, the Bible says that he would speak some hard things. And from that time, many of them would walk no longer with him. They're like, we didn't sign up for that, Jesus. But I love when Jesus turns to his disciples and said, are you going to leave also? And then, then Peter's like, ah, uh, Jesus, where are we going to go? You're the only one that has eternal life. Like, we have no other options. We can't get to heaven on our own. You're the only one. So we're with you, right? We're, we're, we're sticking with you. You see, if you sell them on a sales pitch to Jesus. You're always worried somebody with a better sales pitch will come along and sell them onto their product. If you convince them with a brilliant argument, somebody smarter than you will convince them to somebody else. But when you declare the simple good news and the power of God convicts them of their sin and convinces them of a savior, he says what? They're going to hang on to that for eternity. It's like, I love the illustration of being on the plane and a steward is coming to you and saying, hey, Mr. or Mrs. So-and-so, listen, I want you to have a really good journey. So will you put this backpack on, which is actually a parachute? And so I don't know about you, but I don't find planes that comfortable anyways. So now you're sitting like way forward, bent way forward with, a, with you know, your backpack on. And then the other passengers are laughing at you. The hours go by and you're like, ooh, this isn't worth it. This is not giving me a better experience. I'm going to take this pack off. 
But if the stewardess comes to you and says, listen, Mr. or Mrs. so-and-so, listen, the plane has lost three engines. The fourth is on fire. Put this, this backpack on. It's going to save your life. Listen, I don't care who laughs at me. I'm putting that thing on and I'm keeping it on, right? Because it's going to save my life. Well, that's the gospel. Like, it doesn't matter how many people say, what are you doing? What kind of decision you made? I'm hanging on to this because Jesus is my life. And not only that, but he's walking with me through this life until I get to glory, which is ahead for me. That's why Jesus said, unless son is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. God does the work. When God saves someone, it's not because of how brilliant or persuasive we are. God can use anyone. Remember, he'll even use a donkey if he has to get his message out there. Whose ministry is this? It's God's ministry. It's God's work. And we do it his way. And Paul said, listen, I just came and I made much of Jesus. And I explained Jesus to you. Billy Graham tells a story of a police officer that was on duty one night in a, a city in northern England. As he's walking along with his little flashlight, Billy Cub probably, he sees a little boy crying. He goes up to the little boy and he says, what's wrong? And the little boy says, I'm lost and I don't know where to go. I, don't, I can't find my way home. And he says, okay, what's your name? And then he says, well, come with me. Let's walk through the city and we'll see if we can find something you recognize. And so he would take him and he would show him great points of interest, you know, significant landmarks. And the boy's like, I, I don't know. I don't remember this. I don't know where to go from here. Um, and then they got to kind of like a little courtyard and looked up and there was a cross on a hillside. And uh, the police officer's like, do you re recognize that? And the little boy's, yes. He said, if you can get me to that cross, then I can find my way home. Well, listen, I think that's, that's a call of us. If we can get people to the cross, if we can get people to Jesus Christ, then the cross will take them the rest of the way home. The conviction of sin. Then our job is done in some senses. Um, discipleship and stuff after that. But do you know what I mean? We just got to get them to the cross. We got to get them to Jesus. We need to help them see who Jesus is. And then they can find their way home from there. And, and all of us can do it. The Bible says go into the world. Preach the gospel. So I can preach the gospel to every creation. That's a mandate not given to the pastors here, not given to the teachers, the leaders at Awana or youth group. It's given to each one that says, Jesus is my Lord and my Savior. I remember reading about evangelists. Actually, I was, wasn't reading. It was a tape, I think, that I was listening to. And uh, it was like 30, 35 years ago. I don't remember much. But I remember this story. This evangelist had been in the Navy. They pulled off somewhere in Europe. And so as they, him and his, his mates got off, one of the mates said, oh, there is some revival meetings or something happening. Will you come with me? And he's like, we had time to spare. So I went that evening to the revival meeting. I heard about Jesus, how he could rescue from sin. I got saved. And so, so the next night, we were coming back, and we were going to hear as they were preaching. And then for some reason on the third night, they said to him, okay, we want you to give your testimony. We want you to speak about Jesus. And he's like, I just got saved. I don't even know how to find my way around in a Bible. Somebody had given him a Bible. And so he said, on that third night as they're coming back, I'm like, I don't know what to say. What can I say? I don't know anything about this. This is all brand new to me. But he grabbed a couple twigs as he's on the way um, from trees. And as he got there, he said it, that night, he remembers he stood up and one of the twigs was a dead from a dead tree. And he says, you know what? Three days ago, this is what my life was like before I met Jesus. I couldn't do anything on my own. It was all messed by sin. But he said, when I put my faith and trust in Jesus, Jesus is doing something incredible in my life. And he held up the one with, with just green leaves. He says, Jesus has made the difference in my life. 
Anybody could do that. He went on. God used them to be an amazing evangelist. But listen, that's the story we need to get out. Bring them to Jesus. Make much of Jesus. Make him the hero of the story. And Paul says, and guess what? Look at what happened. Matter of fact, if you read 1 Corinthians 1, God says, not many wise, not many chosen. It's mostly nobody's God used because what the power is of God. So church, can I encourage you? As we go out the doors, there's a culture, as we've just been reminded of, that is, that, that is turning into tribalism. We have a culture out there that is losing um, the, the knowledge of the glory of God. Let's take the message out. All we need to do is make much of Jesus and let Jesus do the rest of the work. But let's be faithful ministers of him. 